0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece has been brought to you by Bonnie Plants. BonniePlants.com I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Martin Kasner, the man who kind of changed how we looked at service wear. Now, we, we've always talked about the, the progress of food, um, you know, modernist cuisine, uh, especially in Chicago with Grant Ackett, a collaborator of yours, but rarely did we talk about the plate that the food was served on, the actual dish itself. Um, a man from a small town in the Czech Republic changed all that for us. But when I was researching Czech cuisine, all I could recall was soup. <laughs> Garlic soup, dill soup, goulash, which is more soupy than stew to me sometimes. Could what? Be. Yeah, what did you eat out of? Not, what, not even what did you eat, but what did you eat out of as a child? Soup bowls. <laughs> so soup I was right about plates. the soup. Yep. What you do now is collaborate with chefs in this way, that they have these very inventive dishes. We're not talking about just soup. Uh, we're talking about famous soups, hot potato, cold potato, where you constructed a wax bowl for Grand Akats at Alinea. Um We're not talking about you know a, a simple cabbage or sauerkraut side. We're talking about vessels, carriers, containers for, for elements of dishes that are are remarkably spectacular um were you always interested in tableware in even in in food?
2: Not necessarily I was uh, much more interested in in the way we interact with objects in general and kind of like the way we move through space and sensory perception um, and I guess the way food came to the surface in a way in my mind is it's it's a medium that transcends a boundary right it's something that is on the outside and then it crosses onto you know it becomes a part of us nourishes as we we eat and that was something that really that has fascinated me because it's you know like as a as a some as somebody who's a sculptor or designer or an artist usually you're confined to things that are happening outside the body you know it's like it's this kind of there is this layer between the outside and the inside. And I was intrigued by air. I was intrigued by water, things that just kind of, that seem to blur this boundary, you know, that, that transcend, that transcend it. And uh, food does it in a very special way. So, it's, um, I was not always interested in food in particular, but it just kind of happened to be, happened to happen.
1: Yeah. Did Did you, were you interested in those, those kind of like traditions of how people eat you know how table settings were splayed out and you know certain things were set on the right and certain things were set on the left
2: no i was always just intimidated by it i wasn't so intrigued by <laughs> it i was intimidated by it because um i think in europe a little bit more so than here that the traditions are kind of like this is where things go and that's how you do it and I was never 100% sure I, I I remembered it, you know, and I remember being reprimanded quite a few times for putting fork on the wrong side or yeah. turning the knife, knife to, to the left instead of the right, stuff like that.
1: Well, I mean, talking about metal, you, you were actually trained as a blacksmith. That's right. Um, you know,
2: so were you playing around with utensils
1: per se or was it bigger things like castles? I know I just fed you that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um it, it, it It ran the gamut, you know, like utensils or weapons, chalices, locks, gates. I mean, they're all a part of the repertoire that you have to deal with. So it it definitely was in there. But I wasn't, you know, having trade as a blacksmith and working for a castle, you're not really looking at challenging convention. You're looking at retracing the steps of the person that was there before you and finding um, either basically repeating exactly what they did using their visual language and the materials and tools of the time or try if you cannot really do that then approximate it as well as you can so it's not really thinking about it in a very creative way it's, yeah. it's really more technical
1: I, I mean were there any visual cues that you took away from working in western bohemia
2: um i'm not sure i think if anything it's kind of like you're looking at these objects that are so traditional and you're you're you're, you're somewhat detached from their context you know we don't eat the way they used to eat, and they kind of lose they don't make sense right some some of these things don't really make sense, or they handle poorly, and you're kind of like do they handle poorly like why did they design it this way? Is it because that's the only way they knew, or is it because it made sense at that time, and you kind of start you know kind of remove your step or yourself a step back and think a little bit more conceptually about the context of what these things are supposed to be doing, and what are they doing now for me? And that's, you know, I guess that's a little bit of a springboard to where I am now.
1: Yeah. I, I could see you being a man that keeps a list of things that frustrate you. Yes, Same. I do. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I do. I have a long list yeah. of I mean, what
1: were change. some of those uh, initial conventions that you, you tried to, you know, bunk?
2: Well, I think it's, it, I mean, this changes, you know, and the list is long. So I don't, I wouldn't necessarily want to prioritize it terribly. But things that we haven't found or haven't addressed, you know, sound... Um, it's kind of like the more environmental, ambient, you know, contextual stuff that can make or break an experience. You know, those are things that on a bigger level really kind of intrigue me and I, I don't have any solutions or anything, yeah. but it's just something that I keep thinking about and, and I keep, keep, um, tinkering with it in my mind, you know, on, on, on a, on the level of, you know, we call it, if we call it a utensil or an eating tool, it's really about, reducing reducing the interactions to a minimum kind of like get away get stuff out of the way you know the obstacles between you and the food or you and the experience like kind of like do we need all this? What do we really need? Like what is what is the essence of this thing that we're trying to do and what is going to be the best tool to provide that?
1: Moving away from metalworks you started focusing in natural materials design and sculpture and then came to the US in in you know, the late nineties to open up crucial detail. What, what was the purpose of opening up a design studio in Chicago?
2: Well, I I wouldn't say there was a purpose to it. It was, you know, it it was more desperation because I'm a blacksmith uh, with a master's degree in fine arts. So I am unemployable. Right. And, um, but I've always had this interest in making, whether it was as a metalsmith or then studying natural materials and traditional technologies. And then also the interest in the way we interact with objects in space. And design kind of falls right in between the two. You know, it needs, it, can, it promotes a culture of making. It requires you to make a physical object, but it allows you also to think conceptually about its purpose and its use. Um, so it kind of sits in between the two areas for which I'm actually technically qualified so that um, it just happened by, um, out of necessity because yeah. I had to make a living.
1: I mean, was there a reason why you moved to Chicago? Is, is the Bauhaus, um,
2: you know, an ideology of yours? Well, no, Chicago actually was not my first stop. We, uh, we lived in Ohio for a few years, then in California, and then moved to Chicago to work on the Alinea project. So we moved to Chicago specifically to, to work on the, on the Alinea book and kind of work more closely with the restaurant.
1: So tell me about that email, that, that fateful day.
2: Well, I just got a random email. It was, you know, I don't know, 12 years ago probably or more. I don't know, 13. Um, I know it was summer. It was probably August. And it just said, I'm a chef looking for new ways of serving food. And it had no, spe- there are no more specifics. You know, there was, there was a return email address there. And I thought it was really fascinating because it touched on what I, th- what I thought about a lot in terms of food and, and serving food in, in new ways. And like to kind of step back a little bit, the reason I, it, it had been on my mind is my wife, when she was um, in school, she worked as a bread baker. And I would come in to help her from time to time and was really fascinated by dough. Or bread as a sculptural material you know it's 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 real it's physical and it's so culturally charged as, as a european living in the us in the late 90s in the midwest there's just that there was no good bread and this thing really kind of connected me back home it was so intense for me um it i really thought i, I started thinking about like why do people not explore this a little bit more like there's such you know there's so much room for for exploration in terms of the way we interact with it but also the way you know the shape it takes and like is it given by tradition or is it given by necessity like is it what is driving this um so i became really intrigued by it i approached the ship she was working for but he it wasn't really his thing so it was not gonna it didn't go anywhere but this random email a year or two later w- was very exciting for that very reason so i, I responded i was kind of like why do you need this and grant was um basically said well we've you know the, the, the tableware hasn't really evolved much and we're kind of developing all these techniques in the kitchen and there's so much stuff we can do but we're struggling with the ways of delivering it in the, in the dining room.
1: So Grant Ackett's was at Trio at the time. I think it was around mm-hmm. 2003. What did you think of when someone said molecular gastronomy?
2: Oh, I, did, I had no idea what that meant. It was not on my radar at all.
1: What was your first interaction with it?
2: Um... Probably eating at Trio.
1: Do you remember some of those specific dishes?
2: Oh, I remember a lot of them. You know, I remember... Um, well, I wouldn't say I remember now. I, when I say I remember, I should start listing ingredients and describing the dishes, which I'm going to you know struggle with. But, you know, I remember eating a celery dish, that, and I never liked celery, and I ate it. And I'm like, wow, this is actually changing my perspective of like or view of what celery is, what celery is like. Um... I mean, I I just kind of remember the cadence and I, you know, but I mean, I'm as an Eastern European, I kind of see the glass half empty all the time. So I just (laughs) I always find the negative. I always find the stuff that's kind of not working for me. So I kind of remember the actually one thing that that was life changing for me um, was the I think it was the general manager or, or the head server. He kept shuffling things around on the table. So he would just, like, push things to the side, you know, because you have wine pairing and you have small bites that are landing on the table. And he would always come in and kind of, like, pull glass away out of the way, so for, make room for the next plate. And it just struck me as kind of this chess game that involves me, my dining partner, and the server. And we can kind of engage in this game on the table. Um, and that really, like a lot of the ideas that followed kind of sprung from that. It's basically this playful interaction, this mini stage that that's in front of us that kind of serves as the mediator between the kitchen and, you know, us as, as diners, but also as, as this playful space where we interact.
1: What was the first piece that you and Grant collaborated on?
2: Um, it was the tripod. It was, um a lollipop stand basically a collapsible lollipop stand so it um it was a frozen sphere of i believe it was hibiscus tea that he wanted to serve as a lollipop but was looking for a way to do it in a four-star dining environment and in a way that would be a little bit more interesting and there were a lot of people to not finish it and still be somewhat elegant so i was just thinking ice is a structural material so we can use that and what else can we do so um like basically kind of take the thought process from there just um building out you know taking three bent pieces of wire that swivel inside the ice so you can uh, it comes out standing atop the tripod but then you grab it it collapses into a stick and you eat it and if you're not gonna finish and don't want to lay down you can you can spread the legs back out and it will, it will stand upright
1: you know what i've always loved about your work is I, i've seen it in, the, in the, at events and um Though you talk about this this playful canvas, you know, the tabletop, where all this serviceware exists, uh, you've done something in which you've eliminated people's hands. You've eliminated that interaction of the table, too. Um, You know, the, the tripod was kind of a precursor to a couple things where people would eat these things almost suspended in space. Well...
2: That's true. But you're not really eliminating hands. You're just you're just you're just directing the interaction into a different area. So it's not necessarily eating hands-free, I think. But it's more um, just interacting with with the app or with the food differently. You know, playing with the idea of of, of presenting it at eye, eye level, so you can really look at it. You can look at it up close, and then removing some of the variables from the interactions. So. The chef then can completely control the way the food's going to interact with the mouth cavity. So you know exactly what's going to hit the soft palate, what's going to hit left, right, back, front of the tongue. Um, So it's not really, I wouldn't say it's removing head. We're just basically moving the control unit away from the food so you can't, uh, you're not going to manipulate it. And the food as a message will be delivered the way it was intended to be received by the chef.
1: Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break and talk about five hours and 25 courses and how you became that director of interactivity at Alinea. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
0: your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow. With Bonnie.
1: And welcome back to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael harlander Cal here with Martin Kasner of Crucial Detail. So, five hours, 25 courses at a linear restaurant. How do you greet someone at the table?
2: Well, I think you want to greet them before they get to the table. <laughs> um, you probably want to set up the experience before, before they sit down. So, um, are you talking about the hallway or are you talking about the menu whatever like there there, are there are many factors i know
1: see but i like how your mind moves through space in that way that you know a a lot of people would expect that there is a point of entry into a restaurant or may it be the egress or it's when you first sit down what is that first piece of experience that you feel like should be necessary for a restaurant to set the stage
2: well i think you know, this changes depending on what the restaurant's message is, what they're trying to do, what you know, what kind of experience they're trying to, to create. But in case of Alinea, it was uh, Grant really felt strongly that he wanted to have this kind of break between the outside world and the restaurant, so people kind of re- hit a reset button, and um, the the concept kind of evolved into this narrowing hallway that has a hidden door inside. So as you're walking towards this kind of narrowing space, that doesn't seem to lead anywhere, the door opens um on a side, unexpectedly. And uh one of the you know, one of the ideas there was kinda like what do you what do you do with the end of the space? Is it just a wall or is anything happening there? And um I kinda came up with this sculpture that I call a swarm. It's a jiggling it's two thousand jiggling wires with uh stainless steel spheres on them. They're not lit. So you kinda have a sense there's something moving and you hear this subtle sound, but you're not necessarily sure what it is. And the idea was kind of to create this intrigue of, uh, that draws you into this space, but then it's interrupted by this door and all of a sudden you're in know, a completely different space and time and, you know, the experience can begin there. Yeah. So the whole idea was kind of like, what, how, do you, how do you build in, the, you know, the idea of expecting the unexpected and kind of like directing people in one way and then shifting gears. Um, and then another step would be, another component of that would be the menu where most places would list ingredients and you kind of pick food based on your priority and at that time Alinea had two menus to choose from basically short form long form uh, now there's it's it's kind of been reduced to only one tasting menu um, and the idea there was like, instead of because all these dishes are so unusual so unexpected and the juxtapositions of the ingredients are not necessarily something that would make sense to most people or that they could even imagine what the food is like it felt like a totally unnecessary like the wrong way to communicate so my thought was to create um an infographic that would kind of plot out the journey map it out so you would see um you would see a map taking you on a sweet savory scale and then intensity of flavor and size of dishes um kind of enabling you to envision the journey a little bit in in an abstract way rather than looking at a list of ingredients
1: you know, on that infographic, it doesn't necessarily reference the materials that each dish is being served on. Um, so when you see something almost like a pedestal, you know, uh, e.g. the the sectional itself, was it hearts of palm, a row of hearts mm-hmm. of palm, with different fillings and accoutrements? Um, what kind of feeling were you hoping someone would have when they had that presented in front of them?
2: I think it was really about kind of simplicity and just kind of intuitive way of interacting with it. Um, and also control. A little bit of was about control, too. Like controlling the sequence in which things are consumed um, or not, depending kind of whether, you know, because, okay, so the thing about all these designs, all these tools is they are tools. And once they're, you know, they always start with a specific idea, a specific concept. But once they're in the kitchen, once they're in use, the concepts will involve and the chefs will want to do different things with it and try it and push the limits and turn it upside down. Um, you know, so maybe certain things that might have been the original idea, they kind of, you know, they go by the wayside and something completely different will happen with them. But the section was inspired by a specific dish, which was uh, asparagus cooked five ways and reassembled on a plate. I just thought it would be interesting to have um, It's basically upright spoons that present the individual bites differently prepared, separated out so you, people can't unintentionally mix it up on a plate um, so basically they're, they're an upright spoon that can be then and it's, again it's the chess scale it's playing with that scale that's both like hand friendly and um, allows you to really compose it on the table whether you want it to be you know linear or completely chaotic and whether you want the things to relate to each other or not
1: Yeah, it feels like you have three things, uh, almost three rules that, you know, each of these service pieces are a vessel. They all have a specific amount of control, but they all have to maintain the food as well, because that's not something you would ever want to compromise. So talk to me about hot potato, cold potato, and necessity for the materials used.
2: So the hot potato, cold potato, it was uh a... it was a. We had a conversation with Granny. He was kind of like, "Well, I would love to serve hot and cold simultaneously, and kind of like in a little bit different way." Um, and so we started talking about what, like, what would be, what kind of food would make sense. It was like, "Well, probably you know, cold soup that has a real something that's piping hot inside it that you eat, but we would have to make sure that it's, it doesn't come together until the very last moment." And I kept thinking about, it, "I'm like, well, we so if we want to maintain something really cold, we need to chill the vessel, and if you chill anything that's porcelain metal glass it's going to be pretty uncomfortable to touch um i kept thinking about for some reason i just had this image of like this these ice cream bars that we used to eat as kids they were were russian ice cream um ice cream bars covered in chocolate and chocolate was not very good chocolate it was very waxy but it wouldn't melt in your hand and it would not um it would not feel cold even though it was frozen, and for some reason that kind of stuck with me. I started experimenting with paraffin wax as a material for its tactility, basically for you know for the low level of discomfort when it came to low temperatures and being frozen or being chilled it just it just felt different it felt good, plus it's translucent so it has this very magical kind of quality to it, and it's soft so you can pierce it with a pin and then suspend the hot bite on top of it so it's kind of the the, the, the the train of thought behind that piece. And one thing that actually was equally interesting about it was the fact that it's not, f- that it's a piece that's molded every day. It's, not, it's something that doesn't really exist. And what we made for, or what I made for, for Alinea was not a finished service piece, but it's sets of molds that they would then use every day to produce this service piece. Um So this kind of like one-step removal or, or meta-service piece yeah. was, uh uh you know, I, f- I found it, interesting and exciting and seems to have worked really well it's been on the menu for some time now
1: i mean you may not think this but i i, I think what you've done for the aviary with the porthole which had its kickstarter phenomenon you know where you were aiming for what about 30 grand and it made three-quarter of a million people were fascinated i think mainly by something that was not only translucent but that could change now, usually you have a plate, and the only thing that changes on the plate is what you put on there. But the presentation of the porthole itself can change with whatever is served or poured out of there. And so it feels like both a temporal thing but a consistent at the same time. It, like, straddles those lines.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, again, we're looking at a concept that revolved around change, around transformation. That's, so the porthole, it was designed to be a tool for transformation, so you, what you want to do is you want to expose it. You want to max, kind of maximize the experience. You want to you create a window into the experience or into the infusion itself, and uh, that's kind of what led me to think of a porthole as as kind of the right a form language, but also physical solution using a double pane window and trapping things in between. Um, so it you know it was again the conversation with the with the bar shifts and and then. Mentioning, oh, we're looking, we're thinking about doing table side infusions. We really want people to be able to see it change and experience it in that short window of time. And we need to be able to compose it so it's actually aesthetically pleasing, so it doesn't feel like we threw stuff in a jar. Um, So, yeah, the portal in a way kind of is a jar, but basically turned on its side, and it's very shallow, very wide.
1: Yeah. I mean, talk about turning something on its side. There, there's a competition, I, I believe it's annual, the Bocuse Tour. Every uh, two years. Every two years, held in Lyon. Uh, all the top chefs in the world come and compete in this, this very rigorous cooking environment. Um, what you did and what the U.S. team did in this past competition, um, not only by placing second, but by changing... The look and feel of how presentation, you know, uh, um, can bestow a, d- a different experience. I mean, really, both changed the Bocuse War, but maybe also gave you greater competition in years to come. Tell me about what that collaboration was like.
2: Um, I mean, it was it was incredibly enriching for me. Um, Phil, it's Phil Tessier, the the chef um, who competed for for Team USA is you know is this incredibly organized and disciplined person who questions everything like along the way and and you know like this rigorous approach was really valuable to me and i learned a lot i've learned a ton i've learned a ton about organization learned a ton about you know like if you're if you're creating if you're cooking 24 dishes in a foreign country um and you need to bring everything with you like you, you need to have these long lists of things and but um Kind of back to the platter, to the to the whole idea of the presentation. He came to me saying that you know he's a traditionalist at heart, and he feels he needs you know he needs to work with somebody who would challenge him in that way, who would basically not be the same way because he felt like that wouldn't be enough. And I thought that was really compelling because it's uh, you know obviously it's pretty flattering if somebody comes to you and says you know I need you to challenge me so we do something better together. But obviously it works the same way in the opposite direction um you know it's a two-way street and i was equally challenged and we kind of pushed each other along um quite a bit but yeah i mean the idea behind the platter really was it took a while to just kind of find a common language get on the same page and feel out what the other person really where they felt at home but at home in a place that's not their home yeah and um I kind of looked at very, you know, a a round platter, very traditional form. And I I kept thinking about just like, how do we, how do we remove design, the concept of design out of like, how do we remove the object as much as we can? And, you know, so, so we ended up with a hollow platter with a hollow ring that that suspends some of the food, um, in midair. Um, but you know, I mean, equally exciting or interesting to, to the platter itself to me was, um, were the tools basically we looked at what originally was nine hours of labor in the kitchen and through thinking about tools the way that they were using um, in the same way that we think about tools in the studio for production we reduced that time to five hours and actually made it possible for them to deliver that level of complexity and and excise that level of control over the food uh, that otherwise would be really really difficult you know that's um That's something that I feel is, you know, when you design serviceware or tableware, you're always kind of straddling this line between, between perfection and versatility, right? Versatility is, if you want to sell a lot of stuff or a lot of plates, a lot of tableware, you need to make something that's very versatile. But inherently, that means it's not going to do, it's going to do some things fairly well, but none perfectly. And um, in the case of a competition, you can, you can forget about versatility because you're designing for one specific purpose and the tool is going to be used only for that purpose and you can really kind of work the efficiency and, and refine the processes, you know, and, and get it to the point where it's, um, you know, it's very simple and elegant and clean and, uh, and you get, you know, minutes of work into a single movement. That's, that's very exciting.
1: Well, on that note, let's talk about a tortilla warmer. All right. <laughs> Alex Dupak of MPON uh, worked at Alinea, uh, but opened up Mexican restaurants here in New York, Mexican-inspired restaurants, and he wanted to change or present differently the, the classic tortilla warmer. What was that conversation?
2: Well, he basically came to me and said, you know, like, this is kind of the key. This is the cornerstone of the cuisine, and it it's you know the tortilla is best served when it's freshly made, never cooled down. So you're not reheating. Um, he explained to me a little bit, kind of about like what the what the dynamic is, like what we, like what the temperature range is, like what the times, what what the what amount of time you actually need to require or to 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 serve it, you know, at its best before it kind of retrogrades a little bit. Um, so we got we looked at it and played with the scale and started thinking about how do we you know like how do you go about designing a thing that needs to go you know be, be very durable and go through the fast pace of, of a tech area um, and still basically deliver and deliver the food but also like feel feel elegant but feel at home in a Mexican restaurant you know it's not necessarily avant-garde in any, any way It's you know we're still um, as, as a form you probably would look at it and wouldn't think twice you know it kind of it's not something that really stands out, um, but the conversation really revolved around scale, volume, temperature, and uh, and, and experiments on that subject.
1: See, customization. Uh, every chef, you know, every foodie wants something of that realm. You know, they they all want a signature this or a signature that, and or experience that is singular. How does someone start working with you? What does that conversation like and who are you collaborating with now?
2: Um, I can't really talk about who I'm collaborating with right now, but uh, the conversation usually happens along the lines of, um, do you know what you want? <laughs> if people say yes, I'm like, well, I don't think it's going to be a very productive conversation because, you know, I, 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 I think it makes a lot more sense for people to come with an open mind and kind of be like, I don't know what I want. I know what I crave. Or I, there's a hole, you know. Or there's like, there's a void that we're trying to fill. There's an experience we're trying to create, and we don't have the tools for it. Like I think that, um, that's, that means that we're gonna, we're both gonna end up in a place we didn't expect to be, and we didn't know we're gonna end up in. That's the exciting part. So if you know, in general, people that come to me with a very specific requirement, I, we don't, I, I can't really work with that very well. Or I don't I don't feel like I can contribute a whole lot in that point, you know, so it's kind of like, yeah, I don't think it's the best use of our time. Um, but but when people can articulate in some this like somewhat abstract, you know, thing like that, they're um, that they're trying to solve or figure out, um, then, you know, you, you just ask a series of questions. Like, what is it that you're trying to do? You know, like what what are the right what are the tools you're using currently? Why don't they work? um and where do you want to be with this like in you know in a couple of years like what is the next step like it's just like this is the void but nothing exists like nothing exists in isolation everything's a part of this continuum so it's kind of like what do you see as the next like where do you see it going because that often inform like the long-term vision will inform the solutions today because you don't you really don't want to create something that that kind of blocks you in but in general, it's just asking, like, what is it that we're really trying to do? You know, sometimes people come to you and say, I want, I want, I want to stand in the middle of the table. And, and after a while, after a little conversation, you realize that what they really want is they want to redefine a part of the experience, the way it's happening. And then we can be like, okay, we're not going to give you a stand for the middle of the table, but we'll, we'll think about what this part of the experience is that you're trying to change does that make sense
1: yes yes and truthfully all I want to do is be in a space where crucial design is at work (laughs) crucial detail and Martin Kastner's mind is in place so thank you very much for coming out Um, for those who think they know what they want but really shouldn't know what they want and want to have a conversation with Martin feel free to check out his website but also know that a lot of these products are now available for purchase too
2: that's true we're actually just uh introducing the porthole at the moma store in soho so um you can go to the moma store to get the porthole or come to our website crucialdetail.com for the rest
1: so access that martin's mind and hopefully you will see some crucial detail in your life you've been listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org i'm your host michael harlan turkel hoping to have you back here next tuesday at three cheers